my name's Alan Black. I'm uh, a friend of Ecclesia, um, an occasional preacher here, and work for London City Mission. And we're in our final chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13, and we're going to be reading from verse 15, following on from um, last week's message. So Nehemiah is very near the middle of the Bible. If you find the book of Psalms, just go back through Job, Esther, and you'll come to uh, Nehemiah. So I'm going to read it verse by verse and comment on it um, as I go along. Um, but just a warning to you, parts of this chapter may shock you deeply and make you think this great hero, Nehemiah, whom we've been reading about for weeks, is actually one of those um, abusive leaders who gets exposed at the end of, the, of his life. So let me just um, highlight before we begin that the refrain in this chapter is not remember Nehemiah, Nehemiah Lord, and his monstrous bigotry um, and bitterness and bring him down on the day of judgment. It is verse 14, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And again at the end of verse 22, remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And then right at the end of the chapter, remember me with favor, O my God. In contrast to the people Nehemiah is fighting against, verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I'm going to assume that what we see in this chapter is zeal for God's house, which you may remember um, it was, was uh, a description of our Lord Jesus Christ when he cleansed the temple. Zeal for God's house consumes me. And I think this is going to be vital for you at Ecclesia, especially as one generation of leaders um, makes way for the next generation of leaders. Um, so let me just pray uh, briefly um, as, as we begin. Um, Lord, um, we are zealous about many things, and all too often they are things concerning ourselves. Please, today, show us our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, show us his passion for his people and may zeal for your house fill us as well. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, allow me to recap very, very briefly from last week. The land of Israel is no more. It's simply an outlying region of the great Persian Empire, which is a multicultural multi-religious melting pot. However, some of the Jews who were scattered all over the world had been allowed to return to the land, and by the grace of God, they had rebuilt first a temple and then the city walls of Jerusalem so that there might be a sign among, for the Jews and a sign amongst the nations 
that God still was going to keep his promise, the promise to come to his temple and for the promise for the word of God to go out from Jerusalem. So we've read so far of of 12 years in which Nehemiah encouraged and inspired the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But more recently, he's been, he was summoned, he was, he was a cupbearer to the em- Persian emperor, which is a very important position, and he'd been called back by the emperor. And he's been away from Jerusalem for some years. We don't know how long, but long enough for everything he established to have become corrupted. And Nehemiah 13 gives us three examples of this. And all three are examples of the seduction of wealth, the influence of foreigners who did not worship the Lord, and, um, but who did exercise enormous economic power. So this is the danger that they faced and that Nehemiah is seeking to deal with. So uh, the first example we looked at last week, which resulted in the cleansing of the temple, Eliashib, the chief priest, had entered into a business partnership with Tobiah, the Ammonite, an enemy of Nehemiah, in order to profit from the temple at the expense of the worship of God. So if you missed that, you can, you can, um, you can listen to it online um, sermons.org, I think it is, Ecclesia, something like that. Um, The second example, and this is when we come to our passage, concerns a disregard of the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was the great sign of Israel's special relationship to their Lord. The whole identity of Israel was defined by God rescuing them from slavery, bringing them to himself, in order that they might enjoy rest in the promised land. So six days you shall labor, the seventh you shall rest, you, your children, your workers, your animals, and the foreigners living in your town. But in the short time Nehemiah has been away, they have lost sight of why they had returned to the land and who they had built the city So verse 15, in those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Now, in one sense, what they did is quite completely understandable. If you are trading in fruit and vegetables, you want to sell them as quickly as possible. But in doing this on the Sabbath, they've missed the whole point of Jerusalem being the city of God. Verse 16 Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. So again, as with last week's passage, we've got another example of foreigners being allowed to take control. 
Um, Tyre was, was one of the greatest trading cities of the ancient world, and it was just 100 miles to the north. And with the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, the people of Tyre saw a great opportunity here and had begun to take residence in the city in order to trade. Nothing wrong with that. There was never an apartheid system in Israel. But it's one thing to allow foreigners to live amongst you and another to allow, allow their values to take precedence over yours. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah, who should have been dealing with this, and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So once again, as with last week, we see the leaders have failed to lead. Um, unaware that the city they lived in depended, the future of that city depended not on trade, but on the Lord's favor. And once again, as we saw last week, Nehemiah takes decisive action to root out this addictive compulsion to serve mammon rather than the Lord. Verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my, some of my own men at the gates so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night uh, by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. So, um, as you are going to return from lockdown next week, wonderful, to rebuild Ecclesia as a household of God, what will you prioritize? Or what will we all prioritize as we come out of lockdown? Me time, work time, or the Lord's day? Um, let me ask those of you who are self-employed, how many hours a week do you work? How many days a week do you work when you employ yourselves? Um, those of you who are employed, um, lucky you, thank God for that. Um, do you have work emails on your phone? Do you look at them outside office hours? Does this digital age ever let us rest? One of the things the Sabbath day teaches us is that rest requires a planned and disciplined approach. Notice how at first when the when the gates were closed against the traders, they still came, 
um, it would be Friday evening and camped outside the gates. Um, it's a bit like addictive behavior. There's no way of doing it, but they've still got a compulsion to do it. Um, I wonder how many of you who are tuned into this, this service this morning, how many of you have looked at your phones um, since the service began? Try a 24-hour digital-free day and how hard it is not to keep looking at our devices. Um, Tim, Tim Keller, um, a famous American preacher, quotes a Jewish woman who, as a young person, had given up on religion but then failed to find rest or peace with her secular friends over the weekend who were always stressing out about romantic um, relationships and success in their careers. So eventually, um, she stopped meeting with them. But just spending Saturday on her own didn't do anything for her either. So she began, much to her surprise, to go back to the synagogue. She discovered there that the rules she hated as a child did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will and one that needs to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. So rest requires um, a disciplined approach. It also requires a communal approach. What's your experience of lockdown, of not needing to commute to work, of not needing to get dressed in the morning, of being able to go to Zoom meetings with your colleagues while you're still sitting in bed? Are you more rested? Or has it simply emphasized to you that in order for us to live and live to the full, we need to be in community. It's not more me time that we need, but more us time. The Sabbath was designed for Israel to be a national communal day for you, your children, your workers, your animals, and for the foreigners living in your town. And um, history shows that though at times they've gone to extreme, the Jewish Sabbath observance has preserved the Jewish community scattered amongst the nations from being absorbed and assimilated by the dominant culture uh, they were living in. Now, we, we, we tend, when we think of the Sabbath and Jesus, we, think, we tend to think of the extremes the Jews had taken the Sabbath to, which was exactly the opposite of what was happening in um, Nehemiah chapter 13, and yet had the same effect. It removed rest and restoration from this day, rest and restoration in the Lord. To them, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest 
for yourselves. So our priority is to come to Jesus, to find rest in Jesus, to have Jesus restore and heal and refresh us. But that we need to come to Christ does not mean we don't need rhythm and discipline and one day in seven. And the weekly celebration of the Lord's Day in community is one way in which we keep our identity as the people of God in a pluralistic culture that so easily could swallow us up. Uh, it's a weekly reminder of who we are, that we only find our true rest in Jesus Christ. It's a weekly reminder of who we work for, not ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. A weekly reminder that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Nehemiah has cleansed the temple. He has reestablished um, the Lord's day. And then thirdly, we see um, Nehemiah tackling marriage problems within the people of God. So let me read verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Okay? Now, um, as Denzel said to us last week, this is... Um, this is not the problem of racially mixed marriages. There was in those days no such thing as a pure-blooded Jew. In fact, there has never, ever been such a thing as a pure-blooded uh, Jew. Abraham's household, who were all circumcised together, Genesis chapter 17, included all sorts of people who had joined um, Abraham, Sheikdom, people from Mesopotamia and people from Egypt. Judah, the father of the Jews, married a Canaanite woman, Tamar. Joseph was married to the daughter of an Egyptian priest. When Israel came out of Egypt, they came out as a mixed multitude, presumably that meaning many other slaves seeing opportunities for freedom says, we are going to join them. Rahab and Ruth, who are listed in the genealogy of both David and Jesus, were not born Israelites, but pagans and joined the people of God through faith and through marriage. And Miriam, you may remember, who opposed Moses' marriage to a Cushite woman, was publicly shamed by the Lord. So this, this, this section is not about racially mixed marriages, but religiously mixed marriages. So for women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, read those who worship other gods and bring their children up to do the same. So look at verse 24. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah, meaning 50% of the future population of Jerusalem had no way of hearing the word of God. And that's, that's Nehemiah's great concern here for the future of Jerusalem 
as the city of God? What sort of culture will this city embody? Is the city of God to be the city of God or is it to be a syncristic, um, a, a culture of a syncristic faith, uh, an interfaith worship center? That was what had happened, if you, if you remember, um, 500 or more years ago in Solomon's day. So Nehemiah says, verse 26, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led astray by foreign women. Um, and um, Nehemiah recognizes that that's the great threat that his people faced in his day. So verse 27, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Now, I just want to ask you some questions. Why? Why this temptation to marry women who followed other gods um, from families with a track record of faithlessness? And the answer is very simple, because these families were dominant in the land outside Jerusalem. And economically and politically, they held the power and the wealth. So it was a case of if you can't beat them, join them. And once again, shock horror, we see Eliashib, the chief priest, has led the way, marrying his son into the powerful enemy household of Sambalat, the Horonite, who was or was to become the governor of Samaria to the north and was a great enemy of the people of God. So verse 28, one of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood at the designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. So there's our reading. What about, what about how does this apply to us? What about, what about our marriages? Um, I think what we need to ask ourselves is, how does, how does my marriage um, serve the kingdom of God? Or if I'm thinking of getting married, how will my marriage serve the kingdom of God? Uh, marriages today are very different from in um, Nehemiah's day. Very few of us enter into arranged marriages. And today marriage is not entered into for political or economic reasons or for the sake of our tribe or clan, or, but for personal reasons. So uh, in the UK today, um, arranged marriages or even beliefs that you should only marry the opposite sex are anathema. In UK today, you marry anyone. At the moment, it's still anyone, not anything, but anyone you choose. What about us? 
well, by all means, let us marry for love. By all means, let us choose who we will marry or whether or not we want to marry. But let us not forget that first and foremost, um, we are the people of God. And what we do affects others. A marriage is meant to be first and foremost for God so that children can be nurtured in the ways of the Lord, so that believers can experience the hospitality of families, and so that unbelievers can taste something of the beauty of being married to the Lord. You can read all of um, Paul's teachings on that in Ephesians chapter uh, 5. Who should we marry? Paul says very simply, we should marry in the Lord. Um, we should not just be thinking about whether that person will make us happy uh, from a companion point, companionship point of view or even from a sexual point of view, but whether together we can grow in the Lord and whether our marriage and home can serve uh, the church of Jesus Christ. Um, now, this is a... Um, a tricky subject so um, some of you may be thinking what about I'm married to an unbeliever what do I do um, well the New Testament says very 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 simply very very clearly do not divorce them as long as they're willing to live with you with you remain with them uh, don't go and start looking around for a more godly partner and don't worry about your children your children are holy um, I will leave that for Ephraim to talk about some other time or some, someone else. But um, remember, thankfully, the language your children are growing up with will not exclude them from the word of God, which has been translated into all, every language on earth. Um, and those of you who are unmarried and want to be married, let it be in the Lord, let it be for the Lord. Um, but let me come to the really difficult verse um, now that I didn't read. I don't know if you noticed that. Verse 25. I'm not trying to avoid it. So when he came across all these um, mixed marriages with half the children not even being able to speak the language of Judah, verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Um, it seems like violent, abusive um, behavior. The oath was probably necessary to remedy um, the situation, but... What about the cursing and the pulling out of the hair? Should our leaders behave like Nehemiah? Is that what church discipline should look like? Um, well, I think we should see Nehemiah. First, yeah, see Nehemiah's anger as an indication of the seriousness of the situation and the great danger this presented to the people of God. Um, Focus on that rather than this is a model for us to follow. I suspect 
the way he showed anger was typical of the way they showed anger in those days and in his culture. And we need to remember, bear in mind when we're reading um, passages from the Bible, especially from the Old Testament, that God was maturing his people over generations. And the way they responded is not necessarily the way we um, should respond. But equally, we do need to recognize there is a time for anger. Um, sometimes we get the idea that all evil, uh, all anger is bad. But scripture doesn't forbid anger. It commands anger. Be angry, but do not see. So if we see um, abuse, whether it's child abuse, police abuse, corruption in high places, we should be angry. How much more when we see the house of God and the people of God threatened by the behavior of those who call themselves believers. We should be angry, but how should we express that anger? Um, Nehemiah started, rebuked them and called down curses on them. Um, is that um, Nehemiah losing his cool and using foul language? Or I suspect rather, is that Nehemiah calling down the judgment of God, the judgment God had said he would visit on his people if he did these things? Curses that were built into um, God's covenant with Israel. And in that, if that is the case, it's, it's almost the same as what Jesus did. Um, when he called down curses on the Pharisees for their abuse of God's word and God's people. And on the Jerusalem of his day that persecuted the prophets and would kill his son. So woe to you. Teachers of the law, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. As for the pulling out of the hair, um, this may be better seen not as a random act of violence, but a means of shaming the shameful. There's another incident in the Old Testament where David had sent messengers to the king of Ammon with whom he'd had friendly relations um, well, not to the, to the new king of Ammon, when, when somebody David had had um, very close relationships with had died. And the new young man who had taken over, instead of receiving them as friendly envoys, decided this was the time to assert his power and authority. And he shaved off half their beards in order to humiliate them. And in those days, that was so shameful that David said to them, Stay on the borders of the land. Don't return home until your beards are fully grown. If you want a more recent example of that, think of women in Holland and France who had prostituted themselves with the enemy in the Second World War and how when the local population was delivered by the Allies, they took these women and shaved their heads to publicly shame them. I think that's what's going on here. Now, in the normal course of events, we should not seek to shame people publicly. If they're at fault, go and talk to them privately. But there are times when we do need to name and shame for the sake of 
the wider body. And sometimes shock treatment is needed to make people realize how serious this issue is. So that is um, Nehemiah chapter 13. What's the great message of this uh, chapter? Last week's message, this week's message, it's warning us how short-lived our efforts in establishing and reforming the church can be if we don't keep up our guard. How easily, once Robin Ephraim stopped being pastors of this church and a new generation come on the scene, how easily things could go in a completely different direction. So if we see the Lord's house or the Lord's day or the Lord's people being corrupted, desecrated, and fail to respond, we become party to the corruption and abuse. Speaking decisively, acting decisively, as Nehemiah does, will not bring popularity. But we do not live to please people. We live to please the Lord. So let us speak and act so that we can pray with Nehemiah at the end of our work in this church. Remember me, oh my God, show mercy to me according to your great love. I've done these things for you, my Lord. So let's pray together as, as we finish. And as we, as we pray, let's ask ourselves, is the Lord's day for me or for the Lord and his people? And is my marriage, my family for me or for the Lord and his people? Paul says, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.